0: Welcome to season three of Sorting Pen, the California Cattlemen podcast. Every day, the California Cattlemen's Association is sorting through the issues impacting California's ranching families and producers. To communicate those issues, discuss solutions, and keep ranchers current on the hot topics, CCA Leadership developed this podcast and is continuing it in 2023. In each episode, we will be talking with CCA Leadership and leading experts on issues specific to ranching and producing beef in California. Tune in every other Monday to hear updates on legislative and regulatory fronts in Sacramento, deep dives into current events, challenges, and more. Well, welcome back to another episode of Sorting Pin, the California Cattleman Podcast. Uh, We're in New Orleans, as I said on our last episode. We're here for the National Cattleman's Beef Association's meetings and Industry Trade Show. Lots of issues happening. We talked about traceability being a hot topic this week. NCBA also announced their other policy priorities for 2023 and protecting the cattle industry from regulatory attacks. No one on this podcast that's listened to it before is unfamiliar with the word WOTUS. That is one of their policy priorities. The Endangered Species Act, which we're going to get into on this podcast. Emission reporting and more. A whole host of other things. Like I said, traceability. is definitely one of those priorities. But we wanted to talk specifically with some of the experts from NCBA about issues in the West. They're working on these topics every day. So we have Seagrid Johannes. She joined the team originally for NCBA, I got to know her a little bit on the communications side, but has transferred over to the federal land side and is an associate director for NCBA. So we're gonna talk with her today about some of the issues she's working on on Capitol Hill and beyond. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I was just mentioning to you, many of our listeners and members probably have gotten to know Caitlin fairly well, Dave Daly from California was on one of the committees last year as a chair and the year before. So we've gotten to spend quite a bit of time with Caitlin in California and at our convention, but I think you might be a new face for some of our members. So maybe let's just hear a little bit about yourself and how you joined NCBA's team.
1: Sure thing. So, you know, I was lucky to get to know you, Katie, on the communications team, but I'm a little bit of an unusual uh, face over on the NCBA side. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and that's uh, not something that you tend to hear a lot, you know, in the agriculture space. Didn't grow up in agriculture, didn't grow up with cattle, but grew up really wanting to know who the people were who were managing some of these big landscapes that, you know, we all know and love. Everyone in the American public has a really firm idea in their head of what they think the West looks like and what they think the West is like. And then as you get older, you know, you start to think what is accurate there and what's not accurate. What are some of the stories maybe that I need to question a little bit? And so that's something that really, uh, you know, stuck with me. And I wanted to learn more about agriculture policy, where our food comes from, who's stewarding these lands. And so I wanted to learn more from the folks at NCBA. And I was lucky enough to do that. Um, as far as the Public Lands Council goes, coming up on one year with that team and covering uh, a lot of wildlife issues, wild horses, you know, some other items that I know your listeners have probably heard a lot about from us and from Dr. David. And others who are, are involved in PLC, but looking forward to uh, getting to know more people out in California.
0: Yeah, I love hearing about your background. I always have fun getting to know the NCBA staff and the ones that have really stuck around a long time. It's always great to hear your guys' background, and you have such a different lifestyle in DC and viewpoint of what you actually do on Capitol Hill because you're doing it every day. Someone said something, I think it was Ethan, in the DC's issues update that said the west is a laboratory for bad federal policy i grew up in the west so i don't really think much about it being so different but it is different and you guys get to work on those issues every day and we're lucky to have you specifically working on those a few of the things that you've been working on you are involved in quite a bit of litigation right now that just came out right before convention maybe let's start there what are the two lawsuits that ncba is pushing back on
1: Yeah. So we are, you know, moving ahead with our WOTUS litigation. I know that's something that that your listeners have probably heard a lot about, but it's, it's one of those things where we're in the race now and we've got to see it through to the end. We've got to really keep pushing on this through to completion. You know, we got that final WOTUS definition out from EPA right at the end of 2022. uh, And it rolls back the clock in time to this 2015 era of, you know, Obama era regulations. And there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into that. I feel like regulatory uncertainty is a phrase that everyone at NCBA, you know, says a dozen times a day, but it, it really does capture the situation. It throws you into a situation where you're not necessarily going to know what the federal government considers you know, jurisdictional on your property or not. And EPA's response has been, well, we're going to consider those things on a case-by-case basis. We're going to look at every ephemeral stream, uh, every you know drainage ditch, stock pond, what have you, and sort of decide on a case-by-case basis whether we think it's federally jurisdictional under the Clean Water Act. Anybody who's worked with the federal government knows that that's going to take Them forever. It's going to be inconsistent. And it's just a completely unrealistic way to approach this piece of of regulation. So we are moving ahead to sue. Uh, We're essentially doing the same thing that we did in 2015. We're filing in the same court. We're filing right down to the arguments. You know, it's a little bit of Groundhog Day, but it is a fight that we need to keep having until EPA gets this right, or if they can't get it right, at least do it better. And what we are also keeping an eye on with that is the Supreme Court is currently considering a WOTUS case uh, on their docket. They heard oral arguments in the case called Sackett versus EPA in October, uh, and they're going to have a decision out on that case in June. So we're in a pretty likely scenario where EPA's final rule is going to go into effect and then, you know, two to three months later, it's going to be out of compliance with that Supreme Court ruling. It's going to be contradicted and and shot down. So, again, just a lot of whiplash for producers, yeah. a lot of back and forth. And I think that just highlights the problem that we've seen with WOTUS for you know decades at this point. It puts people on the back foot. They don't know where they stand. And then it ends up becoming a, a little bit of a political football.
0: We talked with Mary Thomas Hart, I think it was last fall, maybe October, about the Sackett decision or at the Sackett case. So we'll have to have her on the podcast again once She's does come She's
1: out. on top of that for sure. She's on top of it. And, you know, we're lucky to have the resources, uh, you know, at NCBA to push forward with some of these cases. And one of the other areas where we're doing that right now is with the Lester Prairie Chicken. You know, you mentioned Endangered Species Act and, you know, some of these other big, big items and sort of major pieces of legislation that have really grown throughout the years and sort of spawned beyond their original boundaries, I would argue. But, you know, a lesser prairie chicken is certainly one that we've had our eye on and engaged in the rulemaking in the in the comment process and comment periods. And, you know, unfortunately we got a final rule out again at the end of last year. They love to dump everything bad, you know, right before Christmas. Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. Here's a, here's a good pile of uh, bad decisions. Um, but they have uh, decided to list that species. So the lesser prairie chicken they've split into two distinct population segments and we are going to court because we have serious concerns not just about the listing but about the way that they've tackled the 4d rule uh, for the northern dps and that 4d rule as you know i'm sure your listeners are familiar, they've seen this playbook with a lot of other species, you know, across the country and in California. But it's supposed to provide flexibility, it's supposed to provide producers with protection in the cases of incidental take. And this rule kind of does the opposite it penalizes producers uh, and it slots them into this strange framework where they have to have their grazing management plans approved and reviewed by third parties. California is no stranger to this issue, neither is any of the other states in the West, but when you open that door for third parties to sort of be giving a thumbs up or thumbs down to how you run your operation, think of some of the groups that'll come knocking. It's Western Watersheds, it's Center for Biological Diversity, it's a lot of folks who are not getting into that fight because they want to conserve the species, they're getting into the fight because they want to get grazing off the land.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned NCBA is fortunate to be able to have the opportunity. Uh, That was something that came up a couple days ago. Um, Not every ag group does have the opportunity to push back like NCBA has been able to in some of these lawsuits. What does that really come from? How does NCBA have that type of support?
1: That's That's a great question. I think it goes back to our strong network of state affiliates. And when this final rule came out, we kind of knew, I mean, within a few days, really, that it was something where we weren't going to be able to get all the results we needed on the regulatory side. There were at least at least some, if not all, items that we were going to have to settle in court. And so we reached out to our affiliates. There's five states impacted by this listing. That's Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, New Mexico, and Colorado. And we reached out to our affiliates in each of those states and said, let's put our heads together. What does this look like for your producers? What are you hearing? What are the problems that you're you know, anticipating? if this goes into effect or when it goes into effect, rather, since the, it's a final rule. And that knowledge is is invaluable, first of all, because we sit in D.C. and, you know, there are advantages that come along with uh, being able to go up to Capitol Hill and make our case in person, but we're not the ones closest to the ground. We're not the ones looking at these landscapes every day. Our state affiliates, our producers are. And so they give us the information we need to, to assemble our arguments there. And, you know, we also have several affiliates who are kicking in financial support for this case. We're sharing the that cost between uh, several of our affiliates and CBA, and then also some key partners in energy and oil and gas that we've, you know, joined, partnered with for this case, who are doing a lot to to share the burden of cost there too. So it's a big network and everybody brings different strengths to the table. Everybody brings different expertise, but you know, again, we, we really do consider it a big blessing and something that we're very fortunate to be able to do at NCBA because a lot of associations don't have the resources or frankly, they're pulled in a lot of different directions. And that's a key strategy, you know, from some of those anti-grazing groups that we've seen, you know, you can beat somebody down by just, filing enough cases and keeping them busy enough and tied up enough or or run them out of resources so they can't per- afford to keep pursuing the case, that you end up getting a win even when it's undeserved.
0: I think it's a good example of how much NCBA does value producer input. I mean, it is a producer-driven organization. So when you're asking for people to sign on the letters, asking for comments, asking for feedback, not going unused.
1: Absolutely. In this
0: case, it's essential uh, to those states. Obviously, California is not one of them but there is another little bird that's popular in California called the sage grouse. Um, is there any update you have on that? What's kind of going on with that listing?
1: Yeah, so we do anticipate revisions to that sage grass plan, the BLM sage grouse plan, uh, to be out sometime in late summer is what we've been told. You know, I think it's worth noting, and this won't surprise anybody who's listening, uh, you know, if they've been, been plugged into these issues before, the administration can get can get delayed, you know, and things always take longer than than you think they're going to. So again, we've been told late summer is when we'll see some of those changes uh, released, uh, you know, and available for us to look at. But that could get pushed back further towards the end of the year. I think a couple of things worth noting, though, is you know, one, we're not quite sure what those changes are going to look like yet. So we are still very much in information gathering mode and feedback gathering mode. Like you mentioned, this is when we get all of those points, all of those potential flags, areas of concern, you know all of the things that we take to regulators then and say, here's the sum total of what we have heard from our producers, and here's why you need to listen. And here's what that needs to yield, you know, action. It's not just collecting input. It's also making sure that that translates into action. We're going to be reaching out to California and and all the other states across the West as we go through that process. But I think the other thing that's interesting to note is, you know, the Biden administration is in the the back half of their four years now. And they are going very soon into full reelection mode. You're going to see agencies kicking out, you know, rulemakings left and right, trying to put wins on the board, trying to demonstrate progress on some of this administration's like marquee goals. And conservation has been one of those phrases and goals that they have, Uh, at least attempted to make a lot of hay out of. So unfortunately, I think we're going to see an acceleration to some of this, you know, species, especially work that comes out of this administration, including sage grouse. And that's, you know, I, I won't harp too much more on lesser prairie chicken, but I think that's why it really emphasizes the importance for all states, not just those five states in the range. You know, when you have a species listing like that, that establishes this system for fish and wildlife to sort of farm out their authority essentially to third parties and say, okay, you guys are deciding who's liable and who's not. You guys are deciding who's in compliance and who's not with these grazing plans. It's a framework that they could pick up and apply somewhere else. They could do something similar for the sage-grouse. They could do something similar for the greater prairie chicken. They could do something for the monarch butterfly. You know, think of some of those other species. The northern long-eared bat is another great example where they cover huge amounts of the lower 48 states. And so we want to strike down that precedent before it can be applied, you know, to larger chunks of the country.
0: I think something else you guys mentioned a couple days ago, too, was I believe you said it's the 50th year of the Endangered Species and Threatened Species Framework. I don't know exactly what you would call it. The 50th year, so maybe it's time to reevaluate, is this working? Are species getting off of it? Um, Is that something you guys are looking into the next year, or how do you go about that?
1: Yeah, it certainly is. So this is the 50th anniversary year of the Endangered Species Act and that's that founding piece of legislation that has you know resulted in hundreds and hundreds of species over the past few decades being listed as threatened or endangered. But what I think is so you know ironic and it's it's unfortunate but it, it, you almost want to laugh because almost none of those species get off the list. The whole point uh, originally was to create recovery plans, list the species, and then execute on those recovery plans and hit you know clear, defined targeted benchmarks of population numbers for each species. And then once those were reached, you take them off, you delist them. That hasn't happened, you know, for hardly any of the species that go on. It's in the single digit of percentage of species that make it off the list. So I think it kind of Underscores a, a fundamental flaw in the way that the very well-meaning legislation has ended up playing out in reality, and so I think there is a growing appetite, um, you know, among lawmakers. We've gotten a lot of interest from the left side of the aisle. Frankly, I mean, we're hearing this from Republicans and Democrats. And I think that surprises people sometimes, but there's interest across the board in Washington in taking a look at this and making it more workable. Because whether you're coming at it from the angle of you know wanting to keep working lands working, you know, wanting to promote all of the voluntary Conservation that ranchers do, or whether you're coming at it from a very different point of view and saying, you know, I'm an environmentalist, I'm, a, I'm an environmental advocate, you know, this is my primary point of view. No matter which side of that you're on, both sides agree this law doesn't really work anymore. It's not working if it's a permanent waiting room for species rather than a real tool to recover populations.
0: Which isn't what ranchers want either. I know for our members and the producers I interact with, The species they have on their property and the ones they get to learn about and see every day, that's some of our favorite parts of being on the land. So if it's not working across the board, maybe it is time to relook at it.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the worst misconceptions, frankly, that we have to fight in Washington is that ranchers aren't invested in, you know, what happens to these species or they're not, they're not, you know, super interested in the outcome and nothing could be further than the truth. Like you said, you know, these, this is work that producers do because they love it uh, and because they care about the land and they're highly invested often at, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, personal and financial cost to themselves. They take these extra steps because they care about conserving that habitat.
0: Before we wrap up, um, we'll switch out of talking about ESA for a little bit. What other issues are you guys working on in D.C. or maybe in the West that our producers in California might want to hear about or that they can help you with that you might need feedback or input on or even pictures or video from their ranches?
1: Yeah, so I think one thing that's going to be interesting in this Congress is the oversight that goes into some of these uh, really large chunks of money that went out the door through the bipartisan infrastructure law and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And I bring those up specifically because there was a lot of money earmarked in those bills for Western, so called Western priorities, you know, like fire management, uh, fire mitigation efforts, fuels reduction, and also water, water access, you know, storage, uh, different things to combat drought. And so while we were very pleased, well, I won't say very pleased. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of federal money going out the door with, sure, yeah. with no strings attached. But and we, a lot more than we've had in previous farm bills. A lot more than we've had in previous farm bills. Double, double the amount of money, you know, on paper going to conservation than you would get in a normal farm bill. You know, so I won't say we're pleased, but while we were interested to see that some of those important Western priorities, particularly fire, you know, were mentioned in those bills and were included in those directions to agencies, we haven't seen a lot of that money go out the door yet. It's not actually making it to the ground and to these projects where we want to see it. And like just this past week, you had Secretary Vilsack at USDA. Kind of on a, a little bit of a press tour, you know, making a lot of news and attention out of this new USDA announcement on critical, you know, fire sheds that they were paying, put pushing to the top of the list for rehabilitation projects, for fuels reduction projects, and whatnot. And I think there's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of smoke and mirrors about, you know, we're doing this, we're investing here, you know, these are our sites and, and priorities. And then you don't hear about the money actually making it to the projects that need it. So if you have a situation like that, you know, maybe you're a county commissioner. Maybe you work for a conservation district, you know, or you're just a a producer in a certain area and you know that there's a project maybe from your deferred maintenance list uh, that's been hanging around for a long time. Do let us know because we take those examples. We go to the agencies involved. We go to Interior. We go to Bureau of Rec. We go to, you know, Forest Service. And we say, all right, here's the need on the ground. Here's the resources we know you have. How do we connect these two things and actually get something done? And the other thing I'll just say, Katie, before we wrap up is I wanted to mention quickly the grazing regs revisions process. I mean, if you're a federal permittee, you've been hearing from us about this ad nauseum for for quite a long time here. But we are getting into the thick of this process now. And uh, we hope to see a full draft of that EIS and that final rule from uh, BLM by, the summer sort of midsummer is the time that we've been given there, but again, we want to make sure that cooperators, if you're a county commissioner, if you're operate, if you're filling one of those cooperating agency roles, you need to have a full voice in that process and you need enough time to review that EIS and that rule. so we're working right now and we'll be working in the in the months to come to make sure that that turnaround time is not so short that it's cutting people out of the process.
0: Where can producers go to learn the most about that? Is it your website? Is it your newsletter? If you guys don't subscribe to the Public Lands Council's newsletters... They do a great job keeping you updated all the way from what is happening in D.C. to personal staff updates. You do a great job. But where is the best info for producers to go get that?
1: Absolutely. So that's publiclandscouncil.org. Uh, we're also on social media. Uh, but like Katie mentioned, we send out that newsletter, the Daily Roundup. Uh, every morning, it's got the headlines you need to get your day rolling and to stay on top of the issues that impact your operation. And we also do some longer write ups on on policy issues at the end of each month. So highly encourage you to, to check that out and Push comes to shove. Maybe you're not, you know, looking at your email every day. Give us a call. You know, that's what we're there for. We work for you. So we're sitting, uh, you know, in our office or we're out in the country, wherever we are. Get a hold of us. Uh, you know, our contact information is available through through California Cattlemen's, through California PLC, and we'll we'll get in touch with you.
0: Thanks, Sigrid. I appreciate you taking the time. NCBA's summer business meeting is coming to San Diego. So if you want to connect with PLC staff, in the meantime please do call them. I know they truly mean it when they do want to connect with you. They want to hear your issues, see your pictures, um, hear your stories, your frustrations, etc. Connect with them there, but look forward to seeing you in San Diego and maybe even getting you out on a couple California ranches.
1: Thanks so much, Katie. Can't, can't wait.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. You won't want to miss our next episode, which will give us a look into this legislative session for the first time with an update from CCA's Kirk Wilbur. He'll talk about the bills that were introduced by the February 17th deadline. And in our following episode, we'll have an exclusive conversation with Secretary of the California Department of Food and Ag, Karen Ross, as she comes on the podcast. Until then, happy trails.